Yeah, these last four chapters are like an appendix at the end. You know, sometimes you get to the end of the book and then there's like a few extra things. That's what these are. Uh, so I, I struggled with finding some symmetry within these four chapters. So here's kind of what I came up with as far as symmetry goes. All four of these chapters portray David's relationship with the Lord in some aspect. Okay, so in chapters 21 and 24, we see David's public roles in regards to his relationship with the Lord. We see him acting really as a royal judge in chapter 21, and then we see him acting as a priest in chapter 24. He's the one offering the sacrifices at the altar. So we see this public role of David and his relationship with the Lord. And then in the middle sections, 22 and 23, we see his personal relationship with the Lord, his private reflections in regards to his relationship with God. And we also see in that middle section then how that relationship rubbed off on his men. We see, and we're going to get to that at the end. That's pretty cool stuff. So what's really clear to me as I just sat in these chapters, I struggled like putting this together this week. But here's, here's what formed in my head is that in all four of these chapters, we see David's love of God, we see David's fear of God, and we see David's faith in God. And I thought, okay, looking at it that way, that's a pretty good summary, you know, when you get to the end of David's life. We see David's love of God, we see his fear of God, and we see his faith in God. David truly experienced God. I mean, we can look through all the chapters that we've been through. We could go back through, and there is no doubt David experienced God in his life. He had to go through some really hard things and some really trying times, but that's the blessing of going through hard things. When you walk with the Lord within those hard things, you get to experience God. If you turn to him, you get to, and David did. So that's where we're also going to find our last three principles. It's going to hinge on what it means to experience God. What does it mean to experience God? That's where we're going to find our last three principles within these uh, four chapters. So chapter 21, we've already kind of covered that already. But I, I think David, I think that's where we see the fear of God right there. He feared God enough to know that God would not lift the famine until the offense against the Gibeonites was atoned for. And this just amazes me because this, this covenant with the Gibeonites goes back all the way to Joshua. And I don't know if it's been like 400 years maybe. I mean, it's, it's been a while. And here we have God still holding them to a covenant that was made in his name. So I thought, man, God really takes his covenant seriously. He does not joke around with those, which is good news for us because he takes his word very seriously, takes his covenant with us very seriously also. Uh, but I don't think the goal of the narrator here, or the Holy Spirit, I should say, is to get us to doubt God's ways at all. You know, that's not his goal in, in showing us this story. I really think the goal of chapter 21 is just again to show us that the consequences of sin are far-reaching. They, they don't just stop with us. So if we're going to think about sin, I think that it's important for us to also go, 
whoa, this is not just going to hurt me. This could hurt my family. This could hurt my grandchildren. So that makes us think twice, maybe before we do something. I think that's the whole point. I also think we see big time that the wages of sin is death in chapter 21 and then again in chapter 24, which is like we talked about multiplied big time in chapter 24 with the death of 70,000 men. At the beginning of chapter 24, it says that God is angry with Israel. Did you guys catch that? It's kind of an interesting statement. Verse 1 says, again, 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 you know, it just, it happens a lot. Again, (laughs) the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then it says, and he incited David against them. So there's discrepancy as to who that he is. Who is the he that incited David against them? First Chronicles, just jot this down if you want to. First Chronicles 21. Verse 1. Well, First Chronicles 21 gives us the same account of this story. But the very first verse says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. thought that was interesting. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So we don't know why God is angry with Israel. A lot of things I read said maybe it had to do with pride because it seems like David's action here in doing this census is a prideful matter. So maybe God's angry at their pride. We know from James 1, 13 and 14 that God does not tempt us to sin. He's not the one that tempts us. We give in to our own desires, right? But sometimes I do think God allows Satan to tempt us Mm -hmm. to maybe accomplish his will. I mean, kind of crazy, but this sets, I mean, I guess this is, it happened. So it must've been God's will. He, he's angry with Israel. They've done something. I guess they deserve a consequence. And so this is it. Does that make sense? So, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. If not, we'll just move on. <laughs> why was the census wrong? Did you guys get a, any thoughts on why this? I mean, the, the pride maybe, maybe is that why the census is wrong? Because Scripture does allow for a census in Exodus 30. The law does make provisions for there to be a census. The only thing I could think of when you look at Exodus 30 is it says um, that you, when you do a census that each person is responsible for giving a ransom for their life. So it's kind of like you, have, you give like a tithe for your life. It's 30 verse 12. But and I don't, it doesn't sound like that was followed. Well, I, but well, I don't I know. Was like God owns the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Right. God put David in charge of the Israelites, but he does not own them. And when you're taking census over someone, you're basically taking ownership over them. So Mm -hmm. David was inserting himself in a place where he didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And then obviously there's that pride getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I didn't look at the census too much, so it could also be within that that he's only counting the fighting men in this census is what it sounds like. And I think when you did an actual census, you counted all the people. 
So that gives us a little bit direction then on him taking that ownership of maybe the fighting men, kind of thinking this is my army. Yeah. So, and David knows he does it once he does it. It takes like 10 months for the census to get done. But I actually really liked that verse. Verse 10, chapter 24. But David's heart struck him. I hope you all know what that feels like because that means the Holy Spirit is at work within your life. <laughs> I know what that feels like. Then David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. He knew, he knew after it was all said and done that he had done wrong. David is convicted, and we see that David fears God again here enough to act on that conviction. That was some place that I sat for a little bit. I don't think we always act on that conviction. We might be struck, but then it's like, ooh, that's too embarrassing to bring up, or I don't want to talk about that, or, you know, but David acts on his conviction. He is not, he fears God enough to act on it. And he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I thought it was interesting that we had the word foolish again. Since last week we talked about that foolishness versus wisdom. He says, I have done foolishly because sin is always foolish. It's always foolish. So God gives David three choices as a consequence because God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. So he gets three different choices. He can have three years of famine, three months of fleeing before the enemy, or three days of pestilence in the land. Did you guys catch why he chose what he chose? Which one did he choose? We know it. Three days of pestilence. Why? Did you catch why? Yeah, he's very wise in wanting to place himself in the hands of a righteous and merciful God other than the hands of sinful, unholy people. And, I mean, in my estimation, too, I'm like, well, let's just get it over quick. Three days, you know, instead of three years or three months. He probably didn't realize that many people would die. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried to find some indication of what exactly it was, but I couldn't find anything. So well, more people could have died unless it only affected men. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it only says 7,000 men. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true. Yeah, so there could have been more. Yeah, and obviously the angel had something to do with that, going through and basically striking them with whatever this pestilence was. That's interesting, too, because when they took the census, they only counted men. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep, they counted men, and then it only tells us that the men die. Yeah, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the plague comes, 70,000 men die, and as the angel stretches out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relents and says to the angel in verse 16, It is enough. Now stay your hand. We're going to come back to that. So David somehow sees the angel, and he's so moved by what he sees that he says to God in verse 17, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? 
please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David is willing to sacrifice himself based on whatever it is he's seen. I don't even know if he knows that 70,000 people have died. Not Probably not. It's only been three days. Like Word can't spread that fast. But whatever it is he sees moves him to say, no, just let, let me be the sacrifice here, not my sheep, not my people. I love that it said sheep. So then we've already gone there, but God tells David to buy the threshing floor of Aruna. So David buys it at full price verse 24 and there David built an altar offers the burnt offerings and peace offerings and then the Lord says the very last verse so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel so the Lord responded once David offered those sacrifices so again we see atonement being made in this sense we see the shedding of blood in this sense there was both the shedding of man's blood and the shedding of well, actually, it may not have been a shedding of man's blood. We don't know how they died, pestilence. But now we have the shedding of blood with the animals being sacrificed. Okay, we talked about why this spot is so special. It's the same place Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, but God sent a ram to be sacrificed in his place. It's the location Solomon would build the temple. For generations to come, atonement would be made right here at this spot for many, many years until God would send Jesus to die instead. So back up, though, with me to verse 16 of chapter 24, because this gets even better. I think you guys are going to, we're going to end on a high note, okay? Verse 16 says, the angel stretched out his hand. That's important. And what does David then say? Please let your hand... Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David asked God to put his hand against his house. So David asked God to put the guilt of the people's sin fully on his family. And a thousand years later, what does God do? He answers that prayer. He does exactly that. And God does put the fullness of all the people's sins on his family through his greater son, Jesus. I have goosebumps. I feel like it's raining. It's like perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs> Washing us is great. Do you guys see that? Isn't that cool? A thousand years later, God says yes to that prayer. I will put it, David, but not on you because you can't. You're not perfect, but I can put it on your son, Jesus who's coming after you. But so here we see that once again a father's hand Okay, let me back up. Without Abraham and Isaac, what did we see? We saw a father's hand raised over Isaac, right? But what does God do? He says, "Stop." And he stops the hand, right? Here we have an angel above Jerusalem and God says, "Stay your hand." And he does. He does not. But with Christ, God does not withdraw his hand. And the full measure comes down upon Jesus. God did not say it was enough when it came to Jesus. 
until it was all done. He did not stay his hand that time. On our behalf, God refused to speak those words as the fullness of his wrath poured over Christ until it was all done. And I heard some this week, and I don't know if this is like legit or not, but it made me think. So I was like, I'm going to make the women think too about this. So this guy that I was listening to, and he's just an author that I like, but, and he doesn't know. But he thinks Jesus, when he returned after he resurrected and then he appeared to the disciples, and, you know, there's holes in his wrists, and he still has the holes, he thinks at that point Jesus is bloodless. Like, all of his blood was gone. Our life pumps through our body because of blood. But he's like, oh, I think Jesus is bloodless. I think he left all the blood at Calvary. And then what raised him to life? The Spirit raised him to life. And I was like, I have never thought about that before. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if there's blood pumping in Jesus' body. He's God. He's resurrected. But he's resurrected in the spirit. He can walk through walls. I just, did he shed all of his blood? And, but in his mind, he was just like, oh, I think he shed all of his blood. I was like, I never thought about that. But that would, if that's true, that would kind of fit with like him just the fullness you know, you get the sense of the fullness of God's wrath striking Jesus. God did not stay his hand at all. He gave it, he took it all out on Jesus. Which we get this sense by David paying the full price to Aruna, the Jebusite, for the threshing floor. And David knew he couldn't cut any corners. He paid the full price just as Christ would pay the full price to God. He had to pay the full price for our sins. There could be no shortcuts whatsoever for our salvation. Jesus didn't take any shortcuts. That's amazing. He knew exactly what was coming, and yet he still didn't take any shortcuts. I mean, if I knew what was coming, I'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm out of here. (laughs) I am moving somewhere else. Hopefully it's a tropical island somewhere. I'm not doing that. Guys, God may be, he may look cruel sometimes. He may look really vindictive, especially when we look at chapters 21 and 24. We're like, how could God do that? He looks cruel. Sometimes things happen in life that look cruel, but nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, it's true that blood atones for sin, for without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Craig's favorite verse, if you want to know. Hebrews 9.22. But God sent his own son to bleed to death as our substitute. All of his blood, maybe, perhaps, we don't know. And I don't think it really gets any more loving than that, honestly. That's amazing. So here's your first principle on experiencing God. To truly experience God is to find God can't love us enough. To truly experience God is to find God can't love us enough. To truly experience God is to find God can't love us enough. Kind of like what Mike was preaching about on Sunday. There's never a time where God's just going to go, well, that's enough love for you. (laughs) I'm moving on to somebody else now. 
to truly experience God is to find God can't love us enough. He just can't. He can't get enough of us. And he keeps loving us. Romans 8, 31 and 32 fits really well here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He just cannot love us enough. And when we experience God, the way God intends for us to know him, that's what we learn. That's what we experience. That's what we come to realize. He can't love me enough, no matter what happens. So with that being said, I want to flesh out the middle now of, these, of this section of chapters. So go to chapter 22, the song that is recorded here. It's also Psalm 18, almost word for word. There are some changes that commentators get real nitpicky about, and I was like, eh, I don't care. It's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> it's God's word. <laughs> chapter 22, it starts in verse 1. It says, David wrote this, When the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So, I don't believe this psalm was written late in his life. I think this was written early on in David's life. It says, after the Lord delivered him from his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Okay? But it's a great bookend to the book of Samuel, like we already talked about, because of the themes, how it parallels Hannah's song back at the beginning. And then also, I love that what was true at the beginning of David's reign about God is still true at the end. So even if he wrote it um, maybe more towards the beginning of his reign, it was still true. It didn't matter. It was all still true at the end of his reign. It's just that the examples David might have used to speak of God's mercy and faithfulness were probably a little different than what he would have used at the beginning of his reign, right? So we're all thinking of Bathsheba probably and Absalom and all the things that David has just gone through and God had brought David through a lot and one commentator said that this is David's biography right here. Is it autobiography if you write it yourself? Okay, this is his autobiography right here, okay? And David's love for God just pours through this. Like, he loves God. He loves him. And he knows exactly why he is where he is. It's only because of God. He knew it at the beginning, and even after everything he'd been through, he still knew it at the end. He still knew, the only reason I'm here is because of the Lord. So did you notice at, at the beginning all the personal pronouns that he uses? If you look at verses 2 through 7, he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He's my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. This is personal. This is personal. There is no doubt David experienced God deeply, intimately. 
he experienced a lot of aspects of God too. His mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his strength, his upholding, his sovereignty. He knew God. Now what's really cool then about verses 8 through 20 is that it's reminiscent of Israel's redemption from Egypt. They looked back at that. They also looked forward to a Messiah, but we look back to the cross. They looked back to Israel's redemption. That's what they looked back to. So here David takes this picture that he has in his mind of what that might have looked like, and he talks about the earth reeling and smoke coming up from God's nostrils and devouring um, let's see, what was I going to read to you guys? Verse, verse 14, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Here's where we get more of the vision of Exodus. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. When, was, when did that happen? Parting of the Red Sea, right? They were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. David is personalizing Israel's redemption to himself, to God redeeming him. Verse 17, I love this part. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Who did God draw out of the water? You know whose name means drawn out? Moses. So technically what this says here, I believe, is God moses me. That's what that he drew me out, is God moses me. He brought me out. He rescued me. That's what it says in verse 18. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they, too, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. Okay, I like this too. He brought me out into a broad place. Contrast that with verse 7, which says, In my distress. That word distress means narrow, tight, cramped. He brings him from a narrow, tight, cramped place into a broad place and sets his feet upon the rock. That's what God does to our lives. Brings us through these narrow, tight, cramped circumstances that are just going to crush us. And once again, one day, somehow, we find ourselves in a broad place with our feet upon the rock. Then we get to the next section, which after studying Bathsheba and Absalom, is kind of like, how could he say these things? But again, we have to remember, this was probably written well before that. But verses 21 through 25, David speaks of his righteousness, his cleanliness before God, okay? But what's so cool about the placement of these words here at the end of his life is that even though he sinned, they were still true. They were still true. He was still righteous in God's eyes. You know, he wasn't saying it probably quite the same as he would have when he was a 35-year-old, you know, and he's saying these words, but they were still true. Covered by Christ's blood, we are blameless in God's sight, Colossians 1.22. And God does deal with us according to righteousness, but it's according to Christ's righteousness that's gifted to our account. And also, the Lord does reward us according to our cleanliness before him, but how is that? Because he sees Christ's cleanliness, not our own. He sees Jesus. 
And so when you read this, you can kind of think about it that way. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Well, it's a righteousness that's not his own. It's a righteousness that is Christ's righteousness. According to my cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Now, there was a time in David's life where he did keep the ways of the Lord in some really amazing ways that I would have struggled to keep his ways. But then we see him mess up, right? But then these are still true. It's still true because of Jesus. That's why I thought was so cool about that placement. Now, I just want you to listen for a minute to how this is not just David's song, but we could sing this. We could all sing this too if we know Jesus, if we've experienced him. God is indeed a strong refuge. And I'm just going to reference the verse I got this from, 33. Offering us the shield of salvation, 36. When we call upon him, he does save us from the enemy, verse 4. The ways of death have certainly encompassed us, for the wages of sin is death. But God has drawn us up out of the waters. Verse 17, maybe think of baptism. He has drawn us up. He has rescued us. He has rescued us because he delights in us. He does. He really does. Verse 20, in Christ, he has moses us. That was cool. Mo- he has moses us. Verse 17, then he equips us with strength for the battle. Verse 40, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? For this, then, David says at the very end, we praise him before the nations and sing praises to his name, verse 50, because he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. We're, we're part of that. We're part of that. So here's the point of this chapter. You ready? It's God who saved David. It's God who strengthened David. It's God who solidified David. It's God who sustained David. It's all God. And so it's God who deserves the praise. David knows that. And so I just love that this psalm is not only repeated here in the Bible. I mean, it's twice. We have this psalm twice in the Bible. But that it's placed here at the end of his life. Because it was all about, David wanted it to be all about the worship of the Lord. God did all this for David. He's done all of this for us. Not because of anything we've done, but simply just because it's who God is. This is who God is. Yes, God is just. And yes, God does require bloodshed for sin. But God is also abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And that's, this, that's the meat of this right here. And I, that's what David wanted us to know. God is merciful. God is loving. God is good. And David experienced that. David knew God because David had experienced God. How did he experience God? He got to the end of himself time and time again, and there was God. We have to wonder why things have to happen sometimes, because we just got to get to the end of ourselves, and then there's God. He hasn't gone anywhere. He doesn't leave us. And then what we experience is oftentimes amazing, because it's God. So everything from the surprise anointing from Samuel Just think about David's life. To God enabling him to defeat Goliath. To granting him royal status. This little shepherd boy. To sustaining his life in the wilderness. To making him king. To defeating his enemies. To making an everlasting covenant with him. To forgiving his sin with Bathsheba. 
and bringing him through some extremely trying family difficulties, David knew from start to finish how amazing God really was. He knew it firsthand. He'd experienced it. So I love the verse he says in chapter 22. This particular verse, I love this verse, 31. This God, his way is perfect. You may not understand it, but it's perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We may not understand it, but he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And as a result of all of this, and David's experience of God, he could not make God great enough. He could not write enough songs. He couldn't speak about God's works enough. He couldn't dance enough in the streets for God. He couldn't offer enough sacrifices. He couldn't praise God enough. He couldn't pay enough for that threshing floor. He loved God. And David could not make God great enough. And I just wonder, is that how we feel about God? Like, do we feel like we can't make him great enough? Or is he great enough? Is that how we corporately feel about God? Is that how the church lives today? As though we just cannot make him great enough. This is how David lived. He could not make God great enough. So here is your second principle. To truly experience God is to find you can't make him great enough. To truly experience God is to find you can't make him great enough. To truly experience God is to find you can't make him great enough. Man, I feel like that sometimes. Not all the time. But I've had those instances where I just knew that was God. And you just, you know, you just can't, like in that moment, you just can't make him great enough. But I, I want that all the time. I just want that to be my stance towards God. I can't talk about him enough. I can't sing to him enough. I can't serve him enough. I can't give him enough. I can't make him great enough. Which is why I love that 2 Samuel ends this way. It ends with David worshiping God at an altar. That's how it ends. Sacrificing, even though it was due to his own sin. That's where David is at the end of this. He's sacrificing and he's making plans for Israel so they can continue worshiping and serving God. Listen to David's parting words to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. I think this will help wrap things up for us because this, you know, it does seem kind of sudden at the end of Samuel. But in 1 Chronicles 28, this is David's charge to Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, where am I on time? Okay. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. David knew this. If you seek him, he will be found by you. That's what he tells Solomon. If you seek him, because David knew it. He'd experienced it and he knew it. And then it says, Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple. David is the one who planned it all out. I didn't realize that. I thought it was Solomon. Solomon built it. But when I go down here to verse 19, it says, All this he made clear to me. And David goes through it all. The plan for the chambers the plan for the courts, the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house, the treasuries for dedicated gifts, the divisions of the priests and the Levites. David organized that. 
He organized it all before he died. And all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for the golden vessels, for each service, the weight of the silver vessels, it goes through everything. The lamps, the lampstand. And it says, verse 19, all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. David had a plan. Why? Because he wanted his people to worship God. He could not make God great enough. Isn't that so cool? Then David says to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. And he tells him several times in the chapter, do it. Make sure you do it. Here's the plan and please do it. He says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God. And then he says, my God is with you. My God is with you, the one that I've experienced. And then he goes on in chapter 29 of First Chronicles, and he tells the people, this is my son Solomon, and I've got everything ready for him to build the temple, and you guys need to get on board. And they have this big offering, and David challenges them, you guys give like I have. Bring everything, and they do. They respond to this offering. This is David getting everything ready. Then he says this, uh, Verse 18, chapter 29, he prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. This is what David wanted. He just wanted them to keep worshiping and serving God and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. He planned the whole thing, and he just longed for his people to worship God. He just, that, that's, that was his desire. He couldn't give God enough praise. He couldn't make God great enough. And you know what? When we live like that, it rubs off on others. It's contagious. And I think that's what we see with David's list of mighty men. These guys were a bunch of hooligans. These, a, lot, a lot of these guys have been with him from the beginning. And what did it say when they met him in a cave? They were like a bunch of rugrats. I forget exactly what the, how the Bible places them, but they were disgruntled. I think that's what it says. Something along that, those lines. And now they're encapsulated in the eternal word of God as mighty warriors. Why? Because I think David had a contagious faith. He had a contagious fear of God. He worshiped God in front of those men, and it rubbed off on them. We can't look real deeply. We don't have a lot of time. So I just real quickly want to shed a light on a few of the things that said about his mighty men. At the end of chapter 21, it gives us this quick synopsis of like four different battles with the Philistines. And it talks about, I think it's four different guys fighting against giants, mm -hmm. right? Do you guys recognize that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what that tells us is, that's, that's significant. That relays that it wasn't just David who fought a giant. He wasn't the only one who fought a Philistine giant. Then in chapter 23, we read that David wasn't the only one to stand against the enemy alone. His men did the same thing. Nor was he the only one God used to work a great victory. He used these mighty men to work great victories in Israel. Nor was he the only one to kill a lion. Verse 20, chapter 23. And in harsher conditions, no less. It says that, I think he killed him in snow. 
He was like in a whatever mighty man that was. What chapter? Yeah. Verse 20, uh, he struck down two, wait, let's see. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So it's like slippery down there. So what does that make you think of? It made me think of John 14, 12, which says, truly, truly, Jesus says this to us. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. See that connection? David's men did the works he did. And some of them did even greater works than David. What a picture these men are for us, of them finding their strength, of us finding our strength in Christ, of us serving. They served their king, and therefore they became like their king. Pretty cool. And at the same time, what an example David is, truly, for us. The leadership, how he led them. He was not a king like the other nations. He did not lead like the other nations. He loved God. He worshipped God. Yes, David messed up, but David loved God. He feared God, and he had faith in God, deep faith in God. He'd experienced God, and therefore he knew him. And he knew there is no one like God. He declares that in his song, there is no one like God. So here's your last principle of this semester. You ready? You made it. (laughs) (laughs) To truly experience God is to realize there is none like him. That's what you'll realize. To truly experience God is to realize there is none like him. To truly experience God is to realize there is none like him. David's goal was to make sure all of Israel and all the world knew God and worshipped God. He wanted his people to worship God. So I want to end with David's words in Psalm 40, 9 and 10. David says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. He had told them. He had done it. He had told them. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. No, he didn't. He did not restrain himself at all. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. He told everybody, and he worshiped God publicly. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And that's what I want for us, that we won't conceal it. But no matter what, we'll speak it, we'll share it, we'll encourage everyone else to worship God also. May we be so enraptured by God's love and so certain of God's faithfulness and so struck by God's awesomeness that we speak of him. We just can't help it. And we worship him and we praise him. But others might want to do the exact same thing. Pretty cool stuff. David knew God because David experienced God. And we can too. We can too.
Let's pray, guys. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your intimacy with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to know you and to know you so deeply. You have a personal relationship with each one of us. It just blows my mind and how you're intricately weaving and working and so faithfully carrying your promises among all of us, individually and corporately, Lord, but at the same time, sovereignly reigning in justice and mercy. Lord, I just pray as we part ways, God, that these women will certainly not part with you, but that they will just hold tighter to you, that they will learn to love you more. God, I just pray that they'll just carry that feeling of not being able to make you great enough with them. And I just ask that this group right here, that, that we would be able to encourage others together to worship you more. May that be the cry of our heart as well, just as it was your servant David's. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, You're welcome.